You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. If you logged onto the internet between, say, 1995 and 2005, you'd inevitably hear two things. The shriek of a modem, like a robot orgy in a combine harvester, and a cheery man's voice saying, Welcome. And, You've got mail. Elward Edwards recorded those phrases for $200 in 1989, when his wife worked for Quantum Computer Services, the company that would later become AOL. At its peak, AOL had 23 million users, all hearing Edwards' voice. He briefly returned to public attention when a video of him saying the iconic line was posted on social media by one of his Uber passengers. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Every topic I cover on Your Brain on Facts is interesting to me, anywhere from a little, huh, to an all-consuming passion that informs everything from my daily schedule to my podcast listening. This is one of those, because I do voiceovers for a living. Hire me today, no job too small. With a chronic idiopathic pulmonary condition, such as I have, COVID provided the real kick in the pants I needed to finally get out of retail. What I discovered, apart from how it's not as easy as you think, or at least as easy as I thought it would be after two years of podcasting, is that voiceover is everywhere. It's not just cartoons and dubbing movies. Phone menus, kids' toys, GPS, pre-roll ads on YouTube, website explainer videos, e-learning, training, continuing education, audiobooks, podcasts, of course, uh, guided meditations. Seriously, we could be here all day. Even computerized voices usually start with a real person, but more on that later. Your grade schooler will probably never hear a voice that was unbelievably common in the lives of many of us. The number you have reached is not in service at this time. At the tone, the time will be 4, 56, and 20 seconds. That's the soft but authoritative voice of Jane Barbie, one of the world's most widely heard voices. Barbie was the queen of telephone recordings, estimated to have been heard 40 million times a day in the 80s. Everything from automated time and weather messages to hotel wake-up calls. She wasn't the only person who recorded automated phone messages, but she basically had the market cornered. Barbie did most of her recordings for Atlanta-based Electronic Telecommunications, Inc., which at one time produced as many as 2,000 voice messaging systems for businesses and government agencies, and for Octel Communications, which is now a part of Bell Labs slash Lucent. Barbie was heard on 90% of what's called intercept messages, the recording played when something goes wrong with a phone number, and 60% of automated time and temperature calling programs. You see, children, Before you had the exact time and the collected knowledge of humanity to take to the toilet with you, you might have to go to the nearest phone, 
which stayed in one place, and dial a number you had committed to memory, probably the wildest part of the story in my opinion, so that a recorded lady could tell you the current time and temperature. They were dark times indeed. While I still haven't encountered my voice out in the wild, which was especially disappointing after I did a political ad for someone locally, Jane Barbie misdialed her calls as much as the rest of us, an experience she described as really weird. One time she overheard her mother misdial a number and get her on the recorded message. Oh, shut up, Jane, her mother groused before slamming down the receiver in exasperation. The full story of how our go-go tech-driven lives became infused with voiceovers well predates YouTube and phone menus. We have to go back over a century to the night of Christmas Eve, 1906. Up to that hour, the ship wireless operators for the United Fruit Company and those in the U.S. Navy had only ever heard Morse code coming through their headphones. But suddenly, they heard a human voice singing O Holy Night with violin accompaniment and afterwards a reading from the Bible. This was heard by ships along the Atlantic Northeast Coast and from shore stations as far south as Norfolk, Virginia. And a repeat broadcast on New Year's Eve was heard as far south as the West Indies. The voice was that of Canadian inventor and mathematician Reginald Fessenden, who was responsible for establishing the first transatlantic wireless telegraphic communication and what is considered to be the very first voice work. Fessenden was excited by Alexander Graham Bell's new device, the telephone, and set out to create a way to remotely communicate without wires. In 1900, working for the United States Weather Bureau, Fessenden recorded the very first voiceover, a test he made reporting the weather. The following year, Guillermo Marconi, often credited as the father and inventor of radio, became the first person to transmit signals across the Atlantic Ocean. Though wireless communication was invaluable in World War I, broadcasts to the public were largely regional, even amateur affairs. The first radio news program was broadcast on August 31, 1920, by a station in Detroit, Michigan with the call sign 8MK, which survives today as an all-news CBS station. The first college radio station began broadcasting just two months later from Union College in Schenectady, New York. And that is a word I never get tired of saying, Schenectady. Just fun, Schenectady. Around the same time, station 2ADD aired what is believed to be the first public entertainment broadcast in the U.S., a series of Thursday night concerts that could initially only be heard within about a 100 miles or a 160-kilometer radius, though later they got up to a 1,000 miles. It wasn't much, but it was the start of broadcast voice work. The average person knows offhand that the first movie with diegetic or recorded along with the picture sound was The Jazz Singer in 1927, but the biggest event in voice work came the following year, the first talkie cartoon. That was Steamboat Willie, with the prototype for Mickey Mouse, voiced by none other than creator Walt Disney. Hot on its heels came next year's Looney Tunes, and that's T-U-N-E-S, like music, not T-O-O-N-S, like cartoon. In the early days of animation, Disney produced short animated films called Silly Symphonies, 
to promote and sell music, both records and sheet music, because, you know, people back then could play instruments. As Silly Symphonies gained popularity, Warner Brothers created its own equivalents, Merry Melodies and Looney Tunes. As for the Looney part of the title, Warner Brothers wanted to indicate that their cartoons were a little wackier than the sweeter characters of Disney. Cartoons quickly solidified their place as entertainment for both children and adults. One man in particular made Looney Tunes a powerhouse, the man of a thousand voices, Mel Blanc. He's considered to be the first outstanding voice actor in the industry and voiced Bugs Bunny, Porky Pig, Daffy Duck, Tweety Bird, Sylvester, Yosemite Sam, the Tasmanian Devil, Marvin the Martian, Pepe Le Pew, Speedy Gonzalez, and many others, and I did not speed that up in post. One take. Come for me, Micro Machine Man. Raised in Portland, Oregon, he worked at KGW as an announcer and as one of the Hoot Owls in the mid-1930s, where he specialized in comic voices. It took him a year and a half to land an audition with Leon Schlesinger's company, where he began in 1937. He also worked for Walter Lance, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, Columbia, and even Disney, until Schlesinger signed him to an exclusive contract. One of Mel Blanc's most important contributions to the voiceover industry is the recognition that voice artists now get to enjoy. Originally, voice artists were not given screen credit on animated cartoons. After he was denied a raise by the tight-fisted Schlesinger, Blank suggested they add his name as vocal characterizationist to the credits as a compromise. Not only did that give greater recognition to voice artists as a whole, it helped to bring Blank to the public eye and quickly brought him more work in radio. We almost didn't have as much Mel Blank voice work as we do. On January 24, 1961, Blank was in a near-fatal car accident on Sunset Boulevard. He suffered multiple fractures to both legs and his pelvis, as well as triple skull bone displacement. He lay in a coma, unresponsive, for two weeks. After many doctor's attempts to bring him out of the deep unconsciousness, one of his neurologists tried a different approach and asked Blank, How are you feeling today, Bugs Bunny? After a moment... In a soft voice, he replied, Eh, just fine, Doc. What's up? That's as close as you're going to get to an impression of a comatose Mel Blank speaking as Bugs Bunny. Blank recovered shortly thereafter and continued to do what he did best until his death at 81. His tombstone in the Hollywood Forever Cemetery reads, That's all, folks. Bonus fact, Bugs Bunny's habit of eating carrots while delivering one-liners was based on a scene in the film It Happened One Night, in which Clark Gable's character leans against a fence, eating carrots rapidly and talking with his mouth full at Claudette Colbert's character. The trouble was, Mel Blanc hated carrots. He would bite and chew the carrot to get the noise he needed and immediately spit it out. You know what won't leave a bad taste in your mouth? The people who take the time to leave reviews for the podcast. This one comes from someone I know is also following me over on TikTok, Stinky Goat Dog, who left a review on Podchaser, which is like the IMDb of podcasts, who says, Simply amazing. I love trivia podcasts, and this one is absolutely great. I usually can't get into podcasts with a single host because they end up feeling like a lecture, but somehow Moxie manages to achieve the friendly chat feeling all by herself. 
Her voice is remarkable, and I am constantly amazed by her ability to evoke deep sadness and absolute wackadoo hilarity in the span of a few sentences. The topics she covers range from almost depressing, I'm looking at you, we can't have nice things, to the sublimely joyful, see shenanigans. Add in the episodes on important topics, too many to list here, that are always handled with due care and more wry humor than I would have thought possible. And there's something for everyone. Listen for just a little while and you'll feel like I do, that Moxie is one of my best friends that I've never met. And you know what, Stinky Goat Dog? Right back at you. I also feel and am tremendously grateful for all the love I get from our supporters at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts. You're going to want to sign up soon because the bonus episode I'm about to put up, of which some members get two a month, is about a fascinating woman named Stagecoach Mary. So if you want to hear about that, you can join Linda, Oil of Hope, Darlene, Phoenix, Vivia, and Wallet Pager Keys in supporting the show. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place, so we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now? And can you guess the twist? Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds, like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night. Hopping back to Disney, The House of Mouse also pioneered the full-length animated feature, too much soon-to-be-disproven skepticism and derision, with Snow White in 1937. Adriana Casalotti was the daughter of Italian immigrants living in Connecticut. Both her mother and older sister sang opera, and her father gave voice lessons, so making best use of one's voice was kind of their thing. After a brief stint as a chorus girl, when she was only 18, Casalotti was hired to provide the voice for Snow White. She was paid $970, equivalent to about $17,000 today, typical for the non-union times. In most Hollywood stories, this would be step one of a meteoric rise. 
the movie was certainly a success, even briefly holding the title of highest-grossing sound film. So why isn't Adriana Casalotti a household name? All my research indicates that Disney did it on purpose. Casalotti was under contract with Disney, so she couldn't work for any other studios. But Disney never provided her with any other roles. Even radio and TV legend Jack Benny was turned away, with the explanation from Disney, that voice can't be used anywhere. I don't want to spoil the illusion of Snow White. It's the same reason Disney didn't credit voice actors for the first six years of feature films. He didn't want anything to remind the buying public that the characters were just make-believe. Casalotti's only other cinematic contribution, for which she was paid $100, was to sing the single falsetto line, Wherefore Art Thou Romeo, in the Tin Man song in The Wizard of Oz. She was a lovely girl who did not deserve what happened to her. You can see pictures of her right now if you're listening on the Vodacast app. Vodacast is the podcast listening app that I think is going to be the best thing to happen to nonfiction, informational shows like this. It's a podcast player into which I can easily add supplemental information, like pictures, links to articles, all the stuff you need to really get the full picture. It's still early doors for them and for me in learning to use it, so be patient. But you can get it today for both Android and iPhone, Vodacast, V-O-D-A-C-A-S-T. Now, I've actually got a few bullet points on the dark secrets behind The Happiest Place on Earth. There's enough to fill a movie, in fact. You can practically see the trailer now. In a world. I can't possibly do that voice now without doing myself a permanent injury. But only really one man could. The epic movie trailer guy, Don LaFontaine. Don LaFontaine was called The King, Thunderthroat, The Voice of God. His CV included over 5,000 movie trailers and 350,000 TV commercials, network promotions, and video game trailers. His signature phrase, in a world, is so well-known and parodied that LaFontaine parodied it himself in a Geico ad. In a world where both of our cars were totally underwater. LaFontaine was born in 1940 in Duluth, Minnesota, where at the age of 13, his voice changed all at once, mid-sentence, and never broke. This made him very popular with his schoolmates because he could impersonate their fathers over the phone. He began his career as a recording engineer at the National Recording Studios, producing commercial spots for Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. He worked on the other side of the studio glass until 1964, when he suddenly had to fill in for a missing voice actor to finish a promo spot for 1964's Gunfighters of Casa Grande. The film wouldn't amount to much, but the same cannot be said for LaFontaine's new career as a voice actor. He developed his signature style of a strong narrative approach, combined with heavy, melodramatic coloration. In 1976, LaFontaine started his own company producing movie trailers. He moved to L.A. and got an agent, launching a career that would last over three decades. LaFontaine's signature voice came with a busy schedule, and most studios were willing to pay a premium to get on his calendar. It was said that his voiceovers added prestige and excitement, a certain gravitas, to what might otherwise have been a box office bomb. 
In a 2007 interview, LaFontaine explained the strategy behind his signature catchphrase. We have to very rapidly establish the world we're transporting them to. And that's easily done by saying, in a world where violence rules, in a world where men are slaves and women are conquerors. You very rapidly set the scene. Wait, what movie was that second one? I want to watch that. LaFontaine became so successful, he started showing up at gigs in his own personal limo with a full-time driver, until the emerging technology of the internet and ISDN allowed him to work from his palatial estate in the Hollywood Hills. It's hardly worth talking about ISDN as a voiceover today, because it's rapidly on its way out. But as a podcast and amateur educator, I'm more than happy to. ISDN, or Integrated Services Digital Network, is a system of digital telephone connections which enable recording studios anywhere in the US, Canada, and some countries abroad to connect digitally with voiceover talent working remotely in a home studio. It's as clear as being in the same room together and makes a Zoom call look like two solo cups in an old shoelace. But nobody's having dedicated ISDN lines installed these days. It costs at least $1,500 for the hardware and then anywhere from $75 to a few hundred dollars a month for the service. So, onto the rubbish heap of rapidly outdated technology it goes. LaFontaine sadly died suddenly in 2008, and now all we're left with is that inception noise. I mean, it was really cool at first, but now, meh. But despair not. You can hear distinct shades of La Fontaine in the work of Barbadian British voiceover, professionally known as Red Pepper. His legal name is actually on Wikipedia, but I don't like when my legal name gets used, so I'm not going to use his either. Also, if you should find out that someone goes by a name other than the one on their passport, just leave it, will you? Be it a trans person, actor, exotic dancer, or a checkout girl, doesn't matter. You don't need to know what my real name is unless you're writing me a check. Anyway, Pepper has voiced hundreds of trailers, including blockbusters like Jurassic Park sequels, Men in Black, and the new Space Jam. So you've probably heard him, even if you thought he was the old in a world guy. For a side-by-side -side comparison, here's LaFontaine. This time, there are two. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Terminator 2, Judgment Day. And here's Red Pepper. Production directed by Michael Bay. Speaking of iconic sounds, if you've ever heard old movies or newsreels from the 30s or 40s, you've probably heard that weird old-timey way they talked. It sounded a little bit British and a little bit American, but neither at the same time. Was that just the way everyone talked in the period between the world wars? Not everyone, no. Just the people being recorded. This type of pronunciation is called the transatlantic or mid-Atlantic accent. Not mid-Atlantic like Virginia, Maryland, but middle of the Atlantic. Unlike most accents, instead of naturally evolving, the transatlantic accent was acquired. People in the United States were taught to speak in this voice. Historically, transatlantic speech was the hallmark of American aristocracy and, by extension, the theater. 
In upper-class boarding schools across New England, students learned the transatlantic accent as an international norm for communication, similar to the way posh British society used received pronunciation, but we're going to get to that in a minute. Mid-Atlantic English was the dominant dialect among the Northeastern American upper class through the first half of the 20th century. As such, it was popular in the theater and other forms of elite culture in the region. The transatlantic accent has several quasi-British elements, such as a lack of roticity. This means that Mid-Atlantic speakers drop their R's at the ends of words like winner or clear, saying winna or clear. They also use softer British vowels, dance and fast, instead of dance and fast. While those sounds were reduced, emphasis was added to T's. In American English, we often pronounce the T in words like writer and water as D's. Transatlantic speakers really jump on that T. Writer, water, and you should see what just happened on my sound waves when I did that. This speech pattern isn't British or American, but a form of English that's hard to place, and that's why Hollywood loved it. With the evolution of talkies in the late 20s, voice was heard for the first time in motion pictures. And when moviegoers first heard actors speak, they were speaking predominantly mid-Atlantic English. But why do so many speakers of that era have such a high, nasally quality? There's a theory that technological constraints combined with the schooled accent created that period-specific sound. According to Duke University professor Jay Obersky, this sound is an artifact from the early days of radio. Radio receivers had very little bass technology at the time, and it was very difficult, if not outright impossible, to hear bass tones on your home device. Men with pleasing full baritones were of no use to early radio, and the less said about the treatment of female voices, the better. The transatlantic accent made Americans sound vaguely British, but what could make a British person sound more British, like the maximum amount of Britishness, like a cup of Earl Grey tea in a china cup with a scone smeared in marmalade and imperialism? You teach them received pronunciation. Received pronunciation, or RP, is the instantly recognizable super-British accent often described as the Queen's English, Oxford English, or BBC English. RP is described as the standard form of British English pronunciation, though only about 2% or so of Brits actually speak it. So where did transatlantic pronunciation go? Linguist William Labov noted that the mid-Atlantic speech fell out of favor after World War II, as fewer teachers taught it to students and radio and movie sound technology evolved to handle bassier voices. It's not gone entirely, though. British expats like Anthony Hopkins still use it, and it pops up in place of actors' natural British accents in movies. The example that leaps to my mind is Warwick Davis. You've seen him in franchises of such varying quality as Harry Potter and The Leprechaun, among 80 other roles. His first major film role, I'm not counting the Ewok this time, was as the titular Willow in 1988, for which he was taught the transatlantic accent because the studio heads thought Americans wouldn't be able to understand him. Sigh. 
I could probably do a whole episode on executives thinking the average person was a submoronic cretin. Did you ever once have a problem understanding Warwick Davis in anything else? If you think that studio exec was suffering from rectal cranial inversion, hop on the social media and let me know I'm an American who can understand British voices just fine. I'm on Facebook and Instagram, Your Brain on Facts, Twitter Brain on Facts Pod, and over on TikTok where things are getting silly and maker-y. That's at Moxie Labouche. And don't forget about the social groups. We have a subreddit and a Facebook group, both of which you can reach from yourbrainonfacts.com social. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. But it's not, actually. I went back to this old script, you might recognize some of the material, to gussy it up and make a fresh episode, and I just kept adding and adding and adding, and now we have a two-parter. I've got a lot more to tell you about VO next week. We're going to pick right back up with RP and then talk about cartoons, AI, lawsuits, and more. Remember, you can always find the source links and the script at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and stay safe. And seriously, hire me for voiceover work. Mama's got bills to pay. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>